today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, a recent Bank of Canada survey finds that workers are more willing to leave their jobs in search of new work, and businesses are working pretty hard to attract talent. This has become a real problem. Don Kelly has some details. Workers tell the central bank they're more likely to quit their jobs for another post in the search for better hours and pay or a change in industry. That's as businesses say they're having a harder time finding workers, especially in high-contact service industries, and are more willing to offer higher wages. Firms taking part in the Bank of Canada's quarterly business outlook survey say they're going to pass on the higher payroll costs to customers, as well as higher shipping costs related to supply chain disruptions. Don Kelly, The Canadian Press. It appears as if uh, the economic recovery that we were all hoping for uh, is going to be a little more complex and a little more tricky than we had thought. Joining us to talk about uh, this report and the implications it's going to have on that recovery, uh, pleased to welcome back to the program Moshe Lander. Moshe is a senior economist lecturer at Concordia University. Uh, Moshe, pleasure to have you back on the program. Hope you're doing well these days. Always a pleasure doing well. Let's 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 talk a little bit about these numbers here. And and you know, I, as I mentioned just before you joined us, there's an expectation I think in some circles that uh, you know we all have disposable income now because we didn't spend it during those lockdowns. And we're dying to do that. We're going to go on trips. We're going to go back to restaurants. Uh, there's going to be employment again because they're going to open their doors and say we need more people because people are buying stuff. Uh, it's not happening to the degree that we thought. A lot of people are not going back to work. And there are two things that, that jump out here, two phrases that I think we should be talking about here. One is the labor shortage, and the other are supply chain problems. And both of them are having an impact on what we thought was going to be a relatively easy recovery, aren't they? Yeah, and, and both of the things that you cite are on the supply side of the story, right? So what yeah. you were saying about that we were going to race out to restaurants and we were going to go back to spending, that's on the demand side. And so, you know, it's not necessarily that the consumers are unwilling to participate in the economic recovery. It's that businesses are finding a really difficult time in matching that demand. And it's partly why we're seeing rising prices, right? Remember when we spoke uh, just before the election, we were talking about kind of the Sky high by Canadian standards inflation rate. And that's partly the idea that that supply side disruption coupled with that unleashing of demand is causing this this price pressure uh, exactly for the reason that businesses are having a hard time coping. And this is widespread. I think I mentioned I was at a car dealership last year, well, last week rather, just getting my snow tires on. But I, I was talking to the guys in the service department uh, and I said, <laughs> You know, I, there's not much product here. I look out the back there, and I said, you know, if I wanted to come in here and buy a car right now, and he says, well, you'd be hard-pressed. We just don't have the product. And he says, that's the bad news. He says, the worst news is, he says, I don't think it's going to get better anytime soon. You know, the, it's not as if they can flick a switch and say, yeah, the stuff is over there in China. We just have to get it over here. They're not building it fast enough. No, and, and the, the supply chain disruption doesn't just, you know, I mean, maybe it starts in a Chinese factory, but it, it just, it crosses the ocean on so many different levels, right? The the entire shipping industry is having its own problems, right? Finding containers and finding ships to put those containers on. Then when you get it to port, there's disruptions over in the port, partly because of labor shortages and things like that. And then add on transportation issues and getting it to the store shelves or to the dealership. It, it's like every single step of that supply chain is being disrupted. And so it's not one spot that you have to fill it. it, it the the kind of bad analogy is just imagine that you have a pipeline that has 20 holes in it. You plug one hole, it doesn't mean that the pipeline is smooth. It's just you fix that one particular area, but there's still leaks all over the place. And, and that's kind of what's making it frustrating for businesses. Well, as you've just described, the, the two concerns here are very intricately involved. Uh, if we deal with the labor shortage and the labor concerns, 
does that help at least to 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 you know to mitigate the impact that the supply chain issues are having? It you know it solves one of the leaks. It, it doesn't solve the entirety of the problem though, and so you know the the potential problem there too is that you know, solution to say the labor shortage or the labor uh, attraction and retention problem is say maybe higher wages. But you know higher wages at some point is going to spill over into higher prices or even more damagingly, it could spill over into businesses that say, if we're going to have to start paying more money for labor, capital starts to look more attractive in relative terms. And so what you could find is that, you know, if workers start getting a little too uppity in their wage demands, they could quickly find themselves permanently unemployed uh, because it's cheaper to employ a machine to do the work of a bunch of workers. And so, you know, it, it's kind of a delicate balance here that that, that labor problem isn't necessarily the, the solution to all of these supply chain issues. Why, why aren't people going back to work? I mean, and I, I know there are, some of these are, are health reasons, we get that. Uh, but, but this, I, I think, in many circles was, was totally unexpected, Moshe, that they thought, well, it, you know, they're, they're, they want to get back, they want to start earning money, they, they want to get back to quote-unquote normal. Uh, is, is it the government's programs that, that are telling, giving them that option to simply say, no, not yet, I'm not ready? Yeah. Um, I mean, if I'm going to point my finger at one thing, then yeah, it's the ongoing government programs. Now, there is an indication that those programs are coming to an end, and so we'll see what happens in response to that. But, you know, I guess if we want to kind of spin this in a different direction, this is maybe kind of a, a bit of a social experiment of the dangers of the universal basic income that people seem so excited about, that, you know, while the government isn't providing a basic income to all Canadians, that backstop is creating this perverse disincentive to race back to jobs. And we saw something similar 30 years ago, uh, you will remember, uh, when when Bill Clinton uh, came to power and he said, you know, I'm basically cutting off uh, welfare recipients. If you don't find a job within six months, don't come looking to me. Uh, the unemployment rate in the U.S. plummeted because there were a bunch of people that were saying, I don't feel the need that I have to work if there's a backstop there that's too generous. And so I, I think that during the height of the pandemic, the government was perfectly right to offer that hugely supportive uh, income program. Uh, but now that things are starting to pick up, and now that we're trying to get you know the, the bottlenecks in the economy fixed, uh, I think they need to find a way to taper off the generosity. And it, it's not going to be appealing to some people who genuinely do need it. But I think that it's maybe too generous for some, that it's just making it too difficult for them to decide, well, why do I want to give this up and go back to a job? But when we get down that road, it, it, it leads us to the discussion, or probably more appropriately, the debate about who qualifies and who doesn't. I mean, there are some people, as you mentioned, that are going to need assistance uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, I, I've always maintained there should be some sort of a means test. I, you, you know, universally handing out checks, which is what they did uh, with with the CERB thing. Uh, well, it turned out to be a bit of a nightmare, didn't it? First of all, it was hard to track. Second of all, there are a lot of people that got the money that really didn't need it or deserve it. And uh, and it's put it's it's put a, a, I think a bad bad spin on what's going on here, uh, but governments are rather reticent to do that to say you get it you don't. That's the role of government, though, right? <laughs> that that's what they should be responsible. For. You know, they're the ones that have to make the tough decisions. That's why we elected them. We didn't elect them to do the easy stuff. If it were easy, we could do it ourselves, right? But no, you're you're exactly right. And I, I I'm kind of hopeful, maybe naive, in thinking that now that we're kind of past the election. Uh, this is the type of thing that early in a mandate is the type of thing you can do with the least amount of political consequences, even in a minority government, that nobody has an appetite to go back to an election at this point. And the fact that the election came out exactly the same way as it was 
uh, at the outgoing parliament. The fact is that Canadians seem kind of entrenched. So here's an opportunity to say, all right, I didn't want to make it an election issue, but now that we're past the election, we're, we're, we're cutting things off. We're going to make it means tested, or we're going to do things to start removing a lot of that support. If for no other reason, then the government has to start thinking itself about how does it reduce that $350 billion deficit that they ran in the, the last fiscal year. And, and the short answer to that a few months ago, as you and I discussed at the time, was uh, when, when the employment starts and, and when money starts flowing again, uh, that will lift everything. It won't solve it, but it's going to put us back in, in, within reach. Uh, and as you say, there are some factors here that are, are coming into play, including employment and, and supply chain that are, that are slowing that process down. You talked about wage increases. I mean, and I've talked to a number of businesses over the last couple of weeks on this program, and they're saying, you know, we've got to make it, you know, incentivize these people once again. But talk to us about the impact that can have on inflation and what what impact inflation can have on things like interest rates and so many other things that are going to be a part of our lives. So the the first part of wages and how it spills over, you know, if workers start demanding more money, Firms have two options. One is they can pass that on in the form of higher prices, right? So if workers at Tim Hortons now start getting $17 an hour, your cup of coffee is now going to cost 3 bucks. The possibility, though, is that you know Tim Hortons might say, look, I, I can't raise the price that much higher, right? It, it's, consumers won't accept it. Consumers have so many options in the coffee market that if we try and raise it to 3 bucks, we could find all of a sudden that McDonald's starts to look like a much attractive alternative to Tim Hortons. In that case, then, Tim Hortons has no choice but to eat the higher wages, in which case it leads to lower profits. Lower profits could actually be damaging then to the stock market, right? Because the reason why you buy shares is on the expectation of future profitability. And if a company is damaging its profitability because it can't pass along costs, then all of a sudden those shares don't look as valuable. That can wipe out wealth. That can have economic consequences. So, you know, it's not so clear that higher wages are necessarily going to solve problems. It's just going to transfer things around. Now, if it does lead to higher prices, if it leads to inflation, then at some point the Bank of Canada, which has said we don't want to touch interest rates till 2022, is going to have to start increasing interest rates. And the reason for that is if I'm lending you money and inflation takes off, when you pay me back, even if it's with interest, I need to make sure that I get back not just the original money I lent you, but my original purchasing power too. And so when prices are going up, to maintain my purchasing power, you have to give me enough interest to compensate for that, let alone the risk that I'm taking by lending you money uh, and that I might not get paid back. So at some point, the Bank of Canada is going to have to increase interest rates, and that sets the table for all interest rates in this economy, lending rates, savings rates, and, and all of those sorts of things. So you know, if it does spill over into inflation, in the first case where they can pass it along to, to consumers, we're going to see higher interest rates. And of course, if you've got a variable rate mortgage or you've got student loans or car loans that are set to like prime or prime plus something, you could be in a lot of trouble pretty quickly because more of your budget is going to be take up paying interest, let alone the principal on your, your debts. Well, especially because as, as we found out over the last number of years, most of us apparently are over leveraged when it comes to, to debt. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we seem to be able to deal with it, at least some of us or most of us can, uh, simply because of the low interest rates. If those rates go up, uh, I, I can't imagine what the consequences of that could be. Yeah, and, and I think what you're going to find, too, is that, you know, that, that over-leveraging is not evenly distributed through the economy either, right? It's one thing that if all people at all social statuses, all income statuses have the same amount of exposure to those variable interest rates. But if you have parts of society that are very overexposed to that, say, low-income people where a large amount of their income is already being devoted to paying housing costs, 
if all of a sudden the cost of that housing starts rising in the form of higher interest rates, you could find people awash in bankruptcies. And that in itself can be destabilizing because the banks that have lent that money are kind of expecting to be repaid. And if they don't get the money back, while there's a certain segment of society that shows no sympathy for bank profitability, the fact is that if banks realize that the lending game is not as profitable, they start to turn off the taps. That's not just going to affect, you know, small businesses or low-income people. That's going to have ramifications throughout the entire economy, and that's the type of thing that can slow down investment, slow down growth, and harm standard of living. So it, it, it's a really kind of delicate point where we are right now uh, in terms of kind of economic potential and possibilities. Well, and the Main Street issue there, I guess, is with just about every community, uh, if interest rates rise and we have to start paying more of that debt off, that's less disposable income. Uh, and that's going to be problematic, I would think, for small businesses. Moshe, this is a pretty bleak picture we're painting here. Uh, uh, I, I, I guess talking about a worst-case scenario, but I think mean, we have to accept the fact that, look, at we, it, it's something that could happen here. How do we... How do we mitigate this? How, what are we looking for here? I, I mean, governments love to get involved and say, we're going to do this and we're going to fix that. And uh, it, it doesn't always work. Uh, what, what are we looking for now uh, from government and in the way of, of, of putting some parameters on this to try to control what could really easily get out of hand here? Realistic projections. I think that's kind of the key. And it's one of the things that we talked about before the election is that, you know, the NDP and the Conservatives both kind of came out with uh, projections that just weren't realistic. Not to say that the Liberals were like dead-on accurate, but they were kind of the least offensive in terms of, of projections. So, you know, if you come out here and say, look, the economy is at a difficult point, but we're going to steer our way through it, and it's going to take us five years, or it's going to take us ten years, uh, that's realism. And I think that people would be willing to accept a realistic uh, set of projections. If you come out and say, yeah, we're going to have this fixed in two years. Don't worry about it. That, that's not realistic. And so when it fails to happen or when it, we say, oops, we said two, but we really mean four, that's when consumers are going to start hitting the panic button. That's when businesses start hitting the panic button and say, all right, clearly the government doesn't have a strategy here. And again, the, the analogy is, I guess we have to go back again 30 years. The Chrétien government came in with a plan to reduce and eliminate the deficit. And their projections were credible. And in fact, the, the thing that made them popular was they kept coming in saying, we were too pessimistic in our projections. We overshot what we were hoping for, and that's what gave people confidence that, hey, they know what they're doing. And it was the same thing with the Bank of Canada in taming the 1980-style inflation that we had in this country, was they came in with a set of projections and said, look, trust us. And every time they hit their projection, we said, okay, we'll put more trust in you. So I think right now what we're looking for is the government and the Bank of Canada need to come out and say, this is what we're saying. We're not going to sugarcoat it. This is what we think it's going to take. You have to trust us. And as long as they keep delivering, the fact is that I, I think that's going to kind of anchor inflationary expectations and it's going to solve some of the worst things that could happen. Some of these businesses that are, are looking for this economic recovery and, and, and needing it in this stage uh, I'm getting very frustrated by this, though, Moshe. They're, they're looking at this and saying, you know, we, we had kind of hoped that maybe by year's end we wouldn't necessarily be, you know, be on even keel here, but at least we'd see a light at the end of the tunnel. That light is getting further and further away when we see what could be happening here. Uh, and again, I'll go back to the government's role in this uh, in setting parameters. We talked about uh, maybe the CERB and other assistance programs are probably going to have to come to an end. I think it's on the 27th of this month, uh, in the next couple of days anyway. Uh, do businesses get a helping hand here to try to, to to bridge the gap here that could be going on? They could. They they should. I mean, they, they are a part of the economy. Um, you know, the, the hardest thing with businesses is that you don't necessarily know how they're going to use those funds, right? You don't necessarily know how a consumer is going to use the funds. They could use it to pay down debt instead of spending on the economy. 
But, you know, the, the horror stories, of course, that a government does not want to deal with is that they give some sort of subsidy to business, and the next thing you know, the business is announcing dividend payments uh, have gone up, right? Or that they've used that money somehow internally on salaries or, you know, the CEO now has a corporate jet. And so it's, it's not going to be small businesses that necessarily do that, but it's those type of uh, attention-grabbing headlines. It just has to happen once that all of a sudden shames the government into saying, oops, I don't think we want to do this. Uh, because they're fearing the the backlash that comes from that one negative story. So businesses should get it, and in an ideal world, they would get it. I just don't know that this government is going to want to risk that PR nightmare, and I don't know that they have the lever to say to businesses, you can't use this on any of those things that are going to cause us embarrassment, because how can you say that that particular dollar was used for dividends as opposed to replacing worn-out equipment, right? got about a minute left here. Notwithstanding the challenges that we've just talked about here, this report on this survey indicated that a, a, a surprisingly high number of businesses said they are going to reinvest in, in manufacturing and industry and in, 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 in new machinery and things of this nature. Uh, does that mean they're bullish, Not with, despite the, you know, the picture that we've just painted here, that they still think that, yeah, we're going to do this, we're going to make this work? Hewlett-Packard was formed at the height of the Depression, right? Like, this, mm-hmm. is, this is the time. This is when you have nothing to lose. Right. When, when you're in the bad state, this is when you can afford to take that risk. So I, I think that this is the perfect time for businesses to look at. It. And so the fact that they're realizing that, yeah, we have nothing to lose. We just came out of 18 months of a nightmare. Now is the time. And so I, I think that that's kind of the positive thing to take from this. Moshe, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Always great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for this today. Anytime. Take care. Marsha Lander, who, of course, is Senior Economist Lecturer at Concordia University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.